You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Coming along, it's really lovely to be here on home turf to talk about something that uh, I've been working on. And, and I, I'm talking about Ireland and India today, but actually um, I'm still very much grounded in 17th century Ireland and uh, this interest in India uh, actually stemmed from my time as the Vice Provost for Global Relations. So as VPGR, I used to visit India something like every four to six weeks and everything was so familiar. Uh, there were just constant reminders everywhere I went of a shared colonial past. Um, and the strong links between Ireland and India in the 19th and 20th century, of course, are well known to most of us. I don't know if Kate O'Malley, you're familiar with her work, uh, uh, but there's a number of very excellent books. Much less well known um, are the earlier links. And so I'm going to take you back now to the 17th century and to Gerald Ainger. I'm going to apologise in advance how cold it is in here. We have the heating turned right up because if we're talking about India, we have to feel like we're in India. Uh, And as somebody said earlier, not the Himalayas, which is just where we are at the moment. Uh, 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 We we need to get cosy. But Joe will take the temperature down if it does get a bit too tropical. But we're talking about Bombay here where it never gets cold. But I just want to say a few words about uh, uh, Gerald uh, Anger. On his death in 1677, a colleague from the East India Company summarised Anger's contribution to the history of Bombay, quoting here, Anger's fatherly care of this place, Bombay, raised it from a dunghill to what it now is. Uh, Later accounts extolled Anger's farsightedness and suggested that he was the most capable of all early governors, laying the foundations uh, for Bombay's later rise to greatness. Now, given Anger's importance as the founding father of Bombay, and he actually, that's what they call him, uh, his career as governor and as president of Surat, uh, which was 1669 to 1677, is reasonably well uh, documented. Yet no scholars acknowledge the fact that he was born in Dublin during the later 1630s, uh, or he was of planter, uh, Protestant <coughs> planter stock. Maybe they mention it, uh, 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 they don't mention it because they don't think it's relevant. I think they don't mention it because they just uh, 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 don't want to think about how Ireland might have shaped the formation of the Bombay uh, colony. Equally, uh, to historians of Ireland, uh, Anger remains a very obscure figure. The younger son of a younger son whose life was overshadowed by his elder uh, brother, uh, Francis, the Earl of Longford, who was the leading property developer in Restoration Dublin. And I'll come back to Francis, the Earl of Longford, uh, at the end uh, of the talk. What I want to do uh, over the course of the next 45 minutes or so is to examine Anger's Indian biography uh, through the lens of early modern Ireland and look closely as his role, at his roles as uh, entrepreneur uh, and cosmopolitan imperialist, and to try and reconstruct uh, his public and private global networks. As I do that, I, I'm really trying to achieve two things. 
The first thing I want to do is consider how Ireland, England's oldest colony, might have influenced the uh, development of Bombay and how a Protestant from Ireland contributed to the formation of empire in Asia in a period long before the Irish were associated with imperialism in India. And here I'll uh, uh, argue that Ireland served as a laboratory for empire. Put that in inverted commas, and it's not that phrase is not to everybody's taste. Uh, but I, I'm going to argue it was a laboratory for empire um, uh, uh, and a laboratory for 17th century Bombay, uh, much as Ireland served as a laboratory for empire for India in the 19th century. Again, we, uh, we're very familiar with, with that historiography. Uh, Irishmen, like Anger, uh, operated as agents of the English Empire and devised in Bombay structures and policies that were first implemented in colonial Ireland. I'm going to suggest that this warrants the development, uh, in the words of Sanjay uh, Subramanyam, I don't know if people are familiar uh, with his work on connected histories, but he, he uh, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm sort of adopting his ideas around uh, connected histories and suggesting a more connected historical framework uh, for Ireland and Bombay rather than a strictly comparative one. And this connected uh, framework explores the operation of imperialism, albeit in very different contexts, and a framework that acknowledges the differences of geography, uh, of culture, of scale, of history, uh, which of course results in local accommodations. The 17th century English Empire in Ireland was territorial, and by 1603 encompassed the entire island of Ireland, while in India it was initially limited to the city colony of Bombay and mediated by the East India Company. Yet the processes and practices of government, especially the legal and landed uh, ones, and others relating to anglicisation, characterised the implementation of English imperial authority both uh, in Ireland and Bombay. Of course, the need to establish sovereignty, the use of force, the provision of security, law and order, uh, the settlement of colonists, the development of an urban and commercial infrastructure and the exploitation of human capital and natural resources were common to other early modern global empires. Uh, but these uh, imperatives uh, also underpinned the exercise of English imperialism in both Ireland and Bombay. So what I'm really trying to do here is to acknowledge what is common to early modern empires while teasing out what is distinctive uh, to the English empire uh, in Ireland and how then it related to Bombay. So that's the first thing I'm trying to do. The second thing I'm trying to do is to invite scholars of Ireland and the Atlantic world to interrogate eastward enterprises as well as westward ones in a much more interconnected way. Because the date, to date the emphasis has really been uh, on situating Irish experiences of migration in the context of the English Atlantic world, which of course is completely understandable given the scale of uh, the migration to the Caribbean and the Atlantic uh, American colonies. 
and the commercial uh, links, uh, especially with places like uh, the West Indies, but also the way and the extent to which Ireland influenced the plantations of Virginia and elsewhere. This has been well covered by the likes of, of Canny and Quinn. I realise others have critiqued their argument, but actually I, I've revisited a lot of this recently, and I think there's an awful lot uh, uh, that we can uh, uh, take uh, from uh, uh, the work that Cammy and Quinn did. So I'm in not in any way dismissing that. What I'm trying to say is that we need to take a broader uh, a, a geographic lens here. We also, though, need to look at the intimate interplay between commerce and colonisation and the importance of challenging, not just somebody called Phil Stern, who's written a wonderful book on the East India Company, has done, the traditional distinctions between commercial and imperial eras in British India, as well as distinct notions of a colonial Atlantic world and the trading world of Asia. What becomes immediately apparent in any wider study of the Atlantic colonies and Bombay is the extent to which colonisation and commerce go hand in hand. Thus, uh, historians of early modern Virginia and Bombay could, as Phil Stern has suggested, learn a lot from each other. What I'd like to do is include Ireland in that conversation, since it actually might provoke debate around our understanding of colonial processes in the early modern period, but also allow us to better situate the experiences of the English Empire alongside those of other early modern empires that operated on the Indian subcontinent, especially uh, the Portuguese, the Dutch and the Mughals. Now, I realise even the title of the talk, uh, Colonial Ireland, Colonial uh, India, is very broad and may prove uh, controversial. Certainly my goal is to complicate tradi traditional uh, periodisation. Uh, that said, uh, Colonial India did have a different timeline uh, to that of Colonial Ireland, uh, historians uh, traditionally argued that the East India Company pursued trade, not territory, until the second half of the 18th century, uh, when, of course, it did become a colonial power. And I'd like you, or I'd like to invite you, to rethink that. Um, uh, and even though we associate a British imperialism in India with the Second British Empire, and after the uh, uh, years after the victory at Plassey, in 1757, or actually some people associate it with the period of, Ra of the Raj from the mid-19th century. I'm going to argue here that the situation in late 17th century Bombay, despite the obvious and real differences, which are, uh, 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 say, of, of culture, climate, scale, and so on, but they're sufficiently similar to that of colonial Ireland to warrant the development of a more connected uh, uh, historical framework. There's no mention in the records of a grand imperial design for early modern India, but the language of plantation, planters, colonisation and colony is repeatedly used, much as it was in Ireland and the Atlantic uh, uh, colonies uh, during the early decades of the 17th century. In 1668, Charles II leased Bombay to the East India Company, but interestingly, the Royal Letter Patent of 1669 established his absolute sovereignty over the island and specified that the inhabitants of Bombay, quote, were our liege people and subject to our imperial uh, crown. More importantly, and again I'm quoting, people born in Bombay were to be reckoned natural subjects and accorded the same liberties as any subject. 
as if they had been abiding and born within this our kingdom of England and in any other of our dominions. Other dominions obviously included uh, Ireland. Many of you are more familiar uh, 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 with, uh, or as, as familiar with early modern Irish history as I, but for those of you who aren't, just to remind you that the Kingship Act of uh, 1541, which declared Henry VIII King of Ireland, accorded those of Irish provenance the same rights uh, as those of English origin. Uh, in other words, it gave Ireland the constitutional status of a kingdom. Yet the fact remains that Ireland was a kingdom largely in name, and the Crown treated Ireland for much of this period as a colony whose interests were consistently subverted to those of England. Of course, Ireland, with its large Catholic population, did represent a political uh, uh, security threat to England. It meant that it had to be conquered, secured from internal insurrection, uh, uh, external invasion, but it also had to be colonised and civilised. And central to that civilising or anglicising agenda was the promotion of the English language and the widespread use of English architecture, agricultural practices, culture, law, land tenures, systems of government and, of course, religion, the Protestant religion. The Crown during this period also does everything it can to urbanise, to commercialise Ireland and to transform its pastoral and barter economy into one that was market and money oriented. We have the whole expropriation of Irish uh, land, uh, uh, characterising English imperialism, uh, and, and that obviously allows for a whole series of major plantations, first in Munster uh, and then in Ulster, and the migration uh, to Ireland uh, of th tens of thousands of Protestant colonists from England, Scotland and Wales. Now, these planters included Gerald Ainger's grandparents, his maternal grandfather was uh, Lancelot Buckley, the Archbishop of Dublin. His paternal grandfather was Francis, Earl of uh, 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 Baron Inger of Longford. Longford's a fascinating character. He'd been educated at Trinity uh, College in, in Cambridge um, and had qualified as a lawyer before he comes to Ireland to take up a very prominent role uh, uh, in the colonial administration as Master of the Rolls. He's an extraordinarily shrewd lawyer. He's a member of the Irish Privy Council and a very well-placed uh, government uh, uh, commissioner in terms of the plantations of, of Ulster and Wexford. And he enriches himself in the process. But he's also a man on the make. He marries very well. He marries Francis... Uh, sorry, his first wife was Douglas, the sister of Gerald, 14th Earl of uh, Kildare, the man after whom our Gerald uh, uh, was named. Now, we know very little about uh, Gerald Anger's early life, um, and what we do know of his later career is thanks to the archives uh, in the East India Company. Um, now, the archives of the East India Company are absolutely vast. There are nine miles uh, worth of them uh, in the British Library in London. I probably only examined about three or four feet of them. Um, uh, uh, most of the archives are in London, but there are also archives in uh, Bombay, uh, in Elphinstone College, which are in dreadful condition. You can just see how crumbling they are. And I just have to say a quick word about working in the Indian archives, because basically they're open to the elements. So you have the pigeons flying through, the odd monkey jumping in. 
and they serve um, chai. The chai wala comes around twice a day. So here you are with these 17th century manuscripts and tea being served. Everybody has their tiffins at lunchtime, so then you take out your lunch, and again, the 17th century manuscripts are there. And then you have these great big fans, because it's so hot, go swooping around every now and again, they lift the manuscripts off the page. And you think, my God, it's amazing. Anything has survived. But the tragedy is, the stuff in India itself is in, in very, very, very uh, uh, poor uh, condition. Um, but obviously what we do have uh, is uh, uh, predominantly in London and there are hundreds of letters and some of these letters are 50 pages long they're extremely and they document every aspect of Ainger's career uh, as governor he was admitted to the East India Company um, in 1661 um, the East India Company uh, was established in 1600 as a corporation and with uh, later charters became a permanent joint stock trading system it enjoyed very importantly a monopoly uh, with Paris to administer civil and criminal justice, to coin money, to raise armed forces uh, uh, for the protection of trade, and also to arrest and repatriate uh, interlopers. My discussion today will focus very much on Bombay and Surat. But when we think about the trading world of the East India Company, it really stretches here from the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf right through here to the South China uh, at Sea. It's an incredibly uh, sophisticated and integrated uh, uh, trusted trading uh, network and everything is organised around the arrival and departure of these beasts. They're the East Indiamen, they're like floating warehouses and fortresses. They're usually armed with between 30 and 40 guns. Uh, these ones here are flying uh, company colours. And about three or four East Indiamen a year would have sailed to Surat and to Bombay, carrying with them cargoes uh, 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 worth of, of silver, worth tens of thousands of pounds. Remember, it's mostly American silver. The Indians aren't in, uh, interested in uh, English manufacturers and English broadcloths. You know, the temperature and the climate just... You know, anybody who lives there for two seconds would realise the madness of it. What they want is, is silver. Um, uh, from 1613, the uh, company made Surat at their headquarters. And from Surat, then, they manage uh, their factories in Persia and in North and South India. Uh, again, I don't know what you know about Surat, but the, uh, by the uh, uh, mid-17th century, it is the most important uh, port in uh, Western India. Under Mughal rule, it had attracted a very cosmopolitan uh, trading community and enjoyed a very sophisticated commercial infrastructure with highly developed banking and insurance systems, stable rates of interests, one of the largest mints in India, and very elaborate credit networks, far superior to anything that we see uh, in Stuart Britain. It really is quite uh, amazing. And in terms of population, the population of Surat in 1663 was about 100,000 people. Amsterdam would have been about 175. London would have been about 400,000 people. So you're looking at very significant. And then if you look at places like Delhi and Agra, you're looking at populations of uh, 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 600, 700,000 uh, uh, people. It's very difficult to determine exactly how this time at Surat shaped uh, Anger, but I would like to suggest uh, that it uh, did demonstrate to him the importance of creating a cosmopolitan mercantile community mm -hmm. and a secure and stable trading uh, environment. 
And of course, when it came to trade, it's all about spices. Um, uh, uh, the pepper, which uh, uh, from Bantam and from Malabar, uh, and then, uh, but also cinnamon's important and cardamom. But it's really all about Indian uh, uh, textiles. It's about calicoes. This is the era of the calico uh, trade. And remember the 1670s are the absolute boom years uh, of um, uh, the calico trade. And these are exactly Angers uh, years. To begin with, the focus was very much um, uh, on household uh, consumption, tablecloths, bed linens, household furnishings. Uh, but then the demand for cotton items of clothing also grew. What you have here uh, is just a wonderful example of uh, what probably would have been a bedspread. Uh, you can see the royal, the Stuart coat of arms here. This wonderfully, just so detailed uh, uh, flora and fauna, all very intricately uh, uh, embroidered, but also a lovely pineapple. And I think this was commissioned actually to mark the introduction of, of, of the pineapple uh, uh, into um, uh, England in the early 1660s, uh, uh, or it, it dates roughly from this period. A lot of these images of textiles are from the Victorian Albert Museum. Go to the Nehru Room in the V&A if you want to see exquisite 17th century Indian textiles, or to the Textile uh, Museum in uh, Ahmedabad in Gujarat. They're like works of art. India, of course, uh, uh, clothed the world, and that's where these guys made their money. Uh, and that's, of course, why um, uh, uh, the, they were, the English were delighted uh, when the Portuguese uh, gave Bombay to Charles II as part of um, his marriage settlement with the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza, and then the king uh, uh, leased it to the East India Company. But he did so on a very important condition, on the condition that they guaranteed uh, freedom of worship, um, uh, something that had been stipulated in the marriage uh, treaty, and of course was something that was an anathema in other parts, uh, of the king's Anglican uh, uh, dominions. Um, but the truth was, in India, uh, religious toleration was good for business and, uh, as I'm going to say in a moment, was very helpful uh, to Anger in attracting uh, settlers to uh, Bombay. And it's worth just simply noting that Anger extends this whole principle of religious toleration to include all religions and not just uh, Catholics. Just another word about Bombay. I don't want to downplay the significance of Madras or later Calcutta, but it really is important to note how the nature of sovereignty made Bombay unique. The crown owned Bombay as a dominion and the company held it by royal patent uh, from the king, whereas the company leased Madras uh, from a southern Indian uh, uh, prince. So here's Bombay. It's a archipelago of seven little islets. I don't know, has anybody been to Bombay? In the room, yes, a couple of you, yeah, okay. Well, obviously, all of this land has been uh, <coughs> reclaimed, and today it's, it's as if it's a, a single uh, uh, peninsula. Um, it has one of the world's great natural harbours. It really is. It's 10 miles. It's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, a lot of this work and research for this paper was done while I was on sabbatical and I spent six months living uh, uh, in India. I spent a lot of the time in Bombay and I took up sailing when I was there. Um, but I can't tell you how awesome it was to sail into Bombay. Now, I was just in a 35-foot yacht 
But these East Indian men would only have been three times longer, about 120 uh, uh, feet. But if you'd been sailing in there with Gerald Anger in 1669, of course, there wasn't a skyscraper in sight. It was just the landscape would have been um, uh, palm trees. Uh, the Portuguese had been in Bombay for 125 years, but it was completely uh, un undeveloped. Um, and what's so interesting to me is the speed and the ambition which the East India Company has to make Bombay an English colony. It's all about this English colony. They ask that a wall and fortified town be laid out, that the commercial infrastructure uh, needed to encourage trade be put in place, uh, the buildings were to be a stone and brick, and they even say they were to be uh, modelled on the city of London. But let's not let's remember Bombay really is a colonial uh, port fort uh, city. The whole purpose of Bombay was to extract and distribute uh, uh, products not available in Europe and to consolidate local economic and political power in English hands. But earlier uh, parallels with the Londonderry plantation are simply worth noting. Here's a map of the walled and fortified city of Derry, um, which of course had been laid out um, uh, uh, during the reign of uh, uh, King James when he'd obliged the city of London to colonise the entire uh, uh, county. The Irish Society, which itself was modelled on the 1600 uh, 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 charter of the East India Company, was the joint stock uh, venture responsible for achieving this. And it's very interesting to look at the overlaps of membership of the Irish Society and the East India Company uh, during the 17th century. And I don't have time to talk about that and I come back to it if you're interested. Uh, I would, however, um, just say that as the 17th century progresses, the uh, uh, links between Ireland and the East India Company become stronger still. Uh, some directors had direct experience of colonisation, uh, including this man here, Robert Boyle, who was son, of course, of the upstart Earl of Cork, the great monster uh, uh, planter. Uh, Boyle um, had very strong views on how Protestantism should be promoted in both Ireland and uh, India. But other men had very strong Irish uh, interests. I mean, other directors of the East India Company had very strong Irish interests as well. In fact, 70 of the 73 men who serve as directors of the East India Company during the 1660s and 1670s, over half of them uh, had subscribed to the Adventurers Act of March 42 and other schemes, thereby acquiring thousands of Irish acres that had been confiscated during the 1640s. Now, for some of these men, it was purely a business transaction and investment that might form part of a wider global portfolio, but for at least 10 directors, it was more than that. They had close family members uh, living on Irish estates, um, either during the plantations or, or after. Uh, let's look at the single example of Joseph Ash, who was a very wealthy merchant with royalist tendencies from a leading uh, family uh, of West uh, Country textile industrialists, who was one of the largest investors in the East India Company after 1660. Uh, he uh, was a member of the Draper's Company, and it was Ash who had been Anger's great patron, uh, who uh, basically stood surety for him when he entered the East India Company in 1661, 1670, when he became uh, president. And I think an Irish connection explains the patronage, because 
Ash's father's cousins had acquired uh, uh, lands in counties Meath, Cavan, and Londonderry during the early decades of the 17th century. And then during the 1640s, his brothers had been adventurers and his nephew had settled on lands in County Tipperary. So Ash, like a very significant cohort of company directors, would have been very familiar with how uh, colonisation in Ireland operated. And we can begin to imagine how these experiences informed their thinking about how best to proceed in Bombay. And then, of course, Gerald Anger represented a direct link. And after 1660, he worked to make Bombay an English colony. They always come back to this English colony. He has a very detailed uh, vision, which he writes down, and hardly surprisingly, Anger's vision of Bombay accorded very much with the company's vision, but he puts much greater emphasis on plantation and anglicisation. And again, that policy of anglicisation in India is something historians associate more with the 19th century. Uh, Anger is determined to eliminate the use of Portuguese, which had effectively become the lingua franca uh, of the island, um, and the primacy of establishing uh, English as the language of the church, the courts, and commerce reoccurs from um, uh, the 1670s. And I think here there's very interesting parallels between Angel's determination to rid Bombay uh, of uh, Portuguese law, language and culture and English efforts, albeit a century earlier, to suppress uh, Brehan law, Gaelic practices and the Irish language. Angel also insisted uh, that uh, in Bombay uh, only English uh, weights and measures were used, that uh, uh, everyone should be governed by English law and speak the English uh, language. Um, He built the first mint, uh, the first one in India, which issued uh, coinage. The Mughal emperor wasn't too impressed. Um, But interestingly, he gave each coin an English name. For in this and in all things else, we endeavour to entice people to and teach them the English tongue. I suppose what I'm really arguing at a a level here is that what Angel's doing uh, in Bombay is to recreate the world into which he'd been born uh, uh, and in a world where his grandparents had acted as, uh, if you want, sub-imperialists intent on making uh, Ireland English. But it has a twist to it. But it's that, uh, you can see that uh, uh, Irishness uh, uh, or that experience of English empire in Ireland. Um, say something about the colony. Um, he desperately was looking for uh, English settlers, and we have these censuses of Bombay, uh, which show us uh, just from the names. Now, there, it's not just an English colony, there are Irishmen there at a time when Irish Catholics aren't supposed to be in India. That's another story for another day. Uh, what's interesting, of course, is the increasing proportions of women uh, and children. Basically, Anger has the orphanages uh, and the poor houses of London cleared out and the women are dispatched off to India uh, uh, to marry um, the English uh, uh, colonists. We know very little um, about Anger's um, uh, schooling, uh, but the one thing we have are this amazing body of of letters. Um, But we also have an extant... Uh, list of his library, his library in Surat. Um, and he's clearly reading a lot of classical works, a lot of historical works. Um, and he, in his writing, he time and again uh, comes back to humanist ideas of social improvement, the cultivation of virtue, 
and the rejection of corruption in private and political life. He configures social problems metaphorically as diseases and illnesses that compromised the health of the whole body politic. He uses the uh, garden metaphor, a garden as metaphor, um, and through the metaphor of garden, he defines his mission. Something again that is hugely reminiscent uh, of uh, early 17th century humanist writings on Ireland and the American colonies. It's also just worth noting here. Um, um, uh, you don't see any discourse of civility and barbarism uh, in any of uh, uh, Anger's uh, uh, writings, um, uh, uh, as we would have seen in early modern Ireland or in, in the Americas. What we do see are racial superiority against the Portuguese, uh, but it's not against the in indigenous uh, uh, peoples. So in terms of Anger's priorities, the first thing he has to do is defend uh, Bombay from external attack. Um, and again, this makes sense. Defending Ireland had been an absolute imperative for the English administration there. Um, and uh, the legal symbolism of defences as a very tangible means of communicating power, dominance and authority have been discussed by many, including Ken uh, Macmillan. And, and what you have are evidence uh, or examples of Angers' forts across Bombay. This one here, for those of you, as you go across the Sea Link Bridge, you can see it. It's at Worley. What you can't see is that it's on a garbage site. So you have to walk terribly carefully uh, uh, to take the uh, uh, photographs. But these are classic tres Italien, uh, new style uh, uh, fortifications. So he fortifies, and then the other thing he needs to do is to establish English law in Bombay and thereby secure the legitimacy of his administration. And again, as in the case of the Atlantic colonies, the 1669 Charter had given the company a completely free hand uh, to make laws, providing they weren't repugnant uh, uh, to the laws of England. Uh, Anger uh, began by abolishing the well-established Portuguese legal system, which he held to be arbitrary and tyrannical, tyrannical sorry, uh, and then he actually uh, sets up civil codes, uh, which date from 1670 and 1672. Um, and what's so interesting about English law in Bombay is the way that it embodies pluralism. Roman law, civil law, natural law, martial law, the law of nations... And again, all of this resonates uh, uh, with what Ken Macmillan has been uh, saying about the importance of particularly Roman law uh, and how it formed the key legal foundation of English sovereignty in the early uh, Stuart Atlantic world. But it allows us now to extend that uh, argument to Asia uh, uh, as well. To provide for the effective administration of justice, um, uh, Anger divides Bombay into two shires. Ireland had been shired in 1569. He works very closely with George Wilcox, who had some legal training, and um, together they put legal infrastructure in place. I want to say a few words about it um, in what's called Wilcox's Code of 1672. It does three things. The first thing it does is it establishes procedures for the proving and administering of wills, uh, the recovery of debts, and the registering of mortgages and the recording of deeds. The second thing it does is provides guidelines for the keeping of sessions, 
which are clearly modelled on English quarter sections where church and state came together to affect social control, and it falls to the church wardens who were appointed annually to take, quote, notice of all disorders in religion, and then to report to the sessions those who broke the Sabbath, uh, 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 or uh, who were drunk, or profane, or licentious. I'm going to return to the third uh, uh, legal, uh, or the third component of the legal code in a moment, but just while I'm talking uh, uh, about the uh, relationship, if you want, between church and state, I do want to say a few words about Anger's godliness, because I think it is significant here, um, and, and his utter determination to create an alliance of civil and ecclesiastical leaders and push for stricter godly uh, uh, discipline. Um, there we go. The church that you see there is St Thomas's Church in Bombay. The foundation stone was laid by Anger in 1676, however it wasn't completed in the early 18th century. But one of its most prized possessions, is this, it's not as enormous as this, but it's quite a very big silver chalice, which needs a damn good clean. But if it was clean, you would see that Anger uh, gave it to them in 1675. This man sees himself as the John Winthrop uh, of uh, India, and he works very closely with lawmakers to eradicate sin, promote godly discipline, and secure moral uh, uh, regeneration. But his efforts are very much focused to the European colonists. Um, and again, should this surprise us, his father uh, was the uh, Chancellor of St. Patrick's Cathedral, his maternal grandfather was the Archbishop of Dublin, and he remains a very zealous uh, Protestant throughout his life, Again, going back to the inventory of his library in Surat, uh, we have works by James Usher, the Calvinist uh, Archbishop of Armagh, and his less distinguished successor, John Bramall, who uh, was uh, previously Bishop of Derry. And I think these highlight, this continued connection to the Church of Ireland highlights, uh, obviously, his continued attachment to uh, 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 Ireland, but also allows him, in a very practical way, to exercise greater uh, social control. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. I want to go back now to the legal code, the 1672 legal code, because the third thing about that legal code, the third thing it did, was actually drew up rules for the constitution of the court, its fees and procedures. Trials were by jury, and access to courts was cheap and speedy. And he actually uh, uh, established the court beside the bazaar to uh, allow all sorts of people to repair thither. A free court of conscience was set up uh, uh, on a Saturday for smaller suits. There were two prisons established, one for debt, one for felons. And though it's anecdotal, there's very clear evidence to suggest that the courts were very widely used by all members of the Bombay uh, community. The sheer volume of business, uh, together with the very cosmopolitan composition of Bombay, explains why Edinger also established something called panchayats. Uh, now, a panchayat is uh, whereby each uh, religious uh, group selects five representatives to resolve differences. And he uses this phrase, after the custom of our corporations in England. Um, we don't know very much about the operation of Angers Panchayats. Um, however, this sort of accountability, along with the ideal of representation and acknowledgement of local uh, custom, really is very innovative. Uh, and it's, again, something that we associate uh, with uh, later imperial policy in India and elsewhere in the British Empire. And I actually think it was influenced by what he saw in Mughal uh, 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 Surat. 
Um, Ager comes from a legal dynasty. They're all basically all lawyers. And it's interesting, again, when we go back to the library list, to find uh, copies of legal books, including Sir Richard Bolton's uh, A Justice for Peace in Ireland. Um, this is the sort of book that would have been especially useful to Ainger as a, a manual uh, instructing JPs how to do their job. It was like having a pop-up judiciary, you know, it was a how to uh, uh, establish a, a judiciary. He also uh, demonstrates his own command of the law time and again, uh, and particularly when it comes to uh, law regarding uh, land title. Now, the whole transfer of Bombay from Portuguese to English hands has been exceptionally messy. Uh, and by the 1670s, uh, 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 it's very clear that a number of very prominent uh, Portuguese landholders uh, have no title to their land or have a fraudulent uh, title. So in a move reminiscent of landed initiatives in late 16th and early 17th century Ireland, Anger seizes all of their land, uh, forcing the incumbents to prove their titles by English law. It's exactly what we saw in Ireland. Three quarters of them failed to do so, and so having gained the upper hand, Anger very skillfully uh, negotiates a deal whereby he gives them possession, but in return for an annual uh, payment towards the maintenance of the government in Bombay. He calls this agreement a composition. Again, uh, as in comparable Irish initiatives, Ainger expected that those who benefited from the Bombay composition uh, would now commit themselves fully to the king, to the anglicising agenda, and to English law and rule in Bombay. Ainger then called a General Assembly, which discussed and ratified the Bombay composition. Now, interestingly, it was a General Assembly that governed Catholic Ireland uh, for much of the 1640s. The fact that both bodies, one for Ireland, uh, uh, of his youth, if you want, and the other of his Indian colony, uh, city colony, the fact that they shared a name may be coincidental, but it's possible he consciously uh, uh, linked them. We just don't know. Um, time precludes a detailed discussion of the development of Bombay under Ainger's uh, leadership. But suffice to say, it really prospers. Uh, we, uh, there's a, a wonderful map done. Again, the whole mapping bit, uh, sadly, the map is lost. Uh, but we do have a very detailed uh, uh, study, and a detailed description, sorry, of uh, uh, Bombay and all of its uh, buildings. Um, and I think what's you know, significant here, it's as in the Americas, as in Ireland, the whole thing about planned urban settlement and civic domestic buildings, it, it, it all signifies uh, uh, legal rights of possession and ownership. Anger uh, held gardens as great symbols of civility, and he's constantly requesting herbs, plants and flowers. Um, uh, and what you have here is actually uh, the... The, the garden uh, uh, at the back of uh, the main uh, uh, castle. Um, now, it's described by one contemporary as a delicate garden voiced to be the pleasantest in India. Now, given how exquisite some of the Mughal gardens are, uh, that's a compliment indeed, and certainly the engraving doesn't do justice to it. But, but again, it's more gardens as symbols of uh, civility. Certainly the population of Bombay grows extremely quickly during this period. 
Um, when Ainger arrives, there were between 10 and 20,000 inhabitants. By 1675, the figure is 60,000 uh, uh, inhabitants. Remember, Dublin, in a comparable period, uh, uh, has about 70,000 uh, uh, inhabitants. So Bombay and Dublin are roughly uh, the, si- the same size. But of course, the uh, population is far more uh, uh, multicultural uh, in Bombay. You've got Armenians, Hindus, Jains, Muslims, Parsis, those of uh, mixed race uh, who are called blacks, who are of Portuguese uh, provenance, uh, and they cohabit alongside the indigenous uh, uh, inhabitants and alongside a small European uh, uh, colony. People settle in Bombay for very, very simple reasons. They're there because they could worship freely. They're there because they have access to justice and secured uh, uh, favourable uh, trading privileges. Uh, and each ethnic and religious group, they live very separately. Uh, they rarely mingle, except when they come to the bazaar. Um, uh, but th- there's this sense that if you go to Bombay, you'll be treated uh, uh, fairly and well. So he does a fabulous job at, at, at this inward uh, migration of a very dynamic uh, uh, mercantile uh, uh, community. Um, Ainger appears to have acquired some command of native languages uh, uh, and Persian, uh, together with an appreciation of the cultures he interacted with. Um, I was going to say, in case your Persian isn't up to it, this is uh, a chronicle of the kings of the Parsis. Um, uh, it's, uh, 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 he was fascinated by the Parsi Zoroastrian uh, community and he was commissioning uh, works, Parsi works, that he then sent back uh, to um, the librarian in the Bodleian, Thomas Hyde. Uh, and you can see here uh, it's annotated basically saying, uh, you know, thanking Anger uh, for securing uh, uh, these Parsi works uh, and sending them back to uh, Oxford. Uh, he also encouraged the company to set up a printing press in Bombay where, and I'm quoting here, ancient Brahmini writings could be printed. In other words, Hindu uh, uh, works could be printed. He collects Indian and Japan rarities. And now this is why I find so sad, which the company refuses to ship home when he dies. So he has this amazing collection. Everybody comments about the collection and we don't know what uh, happens to it, but it's deemed to be too cumbersome to be sent back when he dies, which I think is tragic because it would form such a wonderful insight uh, into his material world. I want to say a few words about uh, uh, Ainger's calling as a merchant before wrapping all of this up. Because um, uh, like his other colleagues uh, and with the company's full backing, Ainger takes every opportunity to trade privately, especially in diamonds and other precious gems, and to participate in intra-country trade, especially with Persia. He owns at least five ships. What's not clear is how much money he made during his time in uh, Surat and India, but it's clearly a very considerable fortune. And I would argue that over a period of 15 years, his fortune could have been the equivalent of Elihu Yale, who was the governor of Madras, who goes on uh, to found uh, Yale University. Uh, One commentator, one French uh, traveller, Abbe Cadet, suggested that he lost £45,000 worth of goods in a single voyage in 1673. That's absolutely huge uh, 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 money. Uh, What we also see is, as he becomes unwell, he starts to transfer his money home. 
There's no account of Ainger's funeral, but we'd assume that it would be very similar to his predecessor, Sir George Oxenden, where the people of Surati actually died in Surat, where they lined uh, the streets, balconies and rooftops to pay their final uh, uh, respects as the cortege uh, passed. Uh, in his will, Ainger left 3,000 rupees to cover his funeral expenses and for the raising of a tomb. Uh, now, his tomb, again, is in the English cemetery in, in Surat. It's an extraordinarily impressive uh, two-storied uh, monument, uh, clearly built by local craftsmen in the Indo-Islamic architectural tradition. And you can see here some exquisite sort of blue and white uh, uh, mosaic uh, uh, tiles that have uh, uh, survived. It really was a resting place uh, fit for a viceroy. Now, before I, I uh, draw a few general conclusions from this very brief reassessment of Ainger's career uh, as an imperialist and entrepreneur, I think three caveats need to be considered. First, while the East India Company's archive covering these years is voluminous, it is a public archive. No private papers or body of records in any language um, uh, other than English appear to have survived. Now, we know he had a private archive. We know it was sent back to London after he died. We have no idea what became of it. In terms of the other archives, I've had a research assistant look in the local uh, Parsi archives and the Gujarat uh, uh, archives in Surat, uh, and we can find no uh, material from the 17th century uh, relating to Ainger. What I haven't done is look in the Portuguese and Dutch archives, and that will have to wait. Um, uh, uh, but if, if, if they would be the only place that I can think now of looking to try and find a way of countering the dominance of the uh, records of the East India Company. I think the second caveat we need to bear in mind is ask how much agency can be placed uh, on one individual. Uh, there were other ambitious and pragmatic men who were shaping the development of the city colony in Bombay. And then, of course, in London, we have a very significant cohort of directors uh, who had direct experience of Ireland along with other colonies in the Atlantic world and a detailed examination of their global operations uh, during these years and how these men shaped the development of an English empire in Ireland, India and elsewhere remains to be written. Now Dave Brown's work here is a very important step and Dave, I'd love you to do it for the period after 1660. You felt like volume two because I think there's, uh, there is a lot uh, uh, going on there. Also, it would be important to mention um, uh, uh, Ainger's predecessor, uh, in Bombay, the governor, uh, Sir George Oxenden, who did have colonial ambitions as well, but his were very much modelled on Batavia and the Dutch settlement uh, that combined interests of merchants, soldiers and uh, settlers. Um, uh, so, so, you know, it's how much is Ainger, how much is uh, the others? Um, but I think there's another factor we have to bear in mind here, which is distance. Um, distance really determined what might be achieved, the return journey uh, from London to Bombay was 6,000 miles each way. It took 18 months to do the return uh, journey. And this gave great latitude and autonomy to enterprising company officials like Ainger who were in situ and wanted to make their mark. The third caveat is influences other than those of Ireland. They clearly shape Ainger's thinking and actions. 
He was born and reared in Ireland, but he did spend formative years living uh, in London at uh, the late 50s and then in Mughal Surat in the 1660s. And particularly in Surat, he undoubtedly absorbs uh, the sophisticated commercial practices as well as an interest in the languages and cultures of the region. But Anger also draws insights from other English colonies, particularly in the Atlantic world, and from the Dutch and Portuguese experiences of trade and settlement in Asia. So, and you can see him commenting and reflecting on that. And it brings me to Alison Gaines and her work, where she argues that entrepreneurs um, like Anger, who were familiar with foreign languages and cultures and very curious about their world, wove a web of empire. Uh, this was an empire that combined commerce and colonisation that was formulated in port towns like London and Surat and in colonies like Ireland and uh, uh, Bombay. And again, I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, with Alison Gaines's work, but she notes how uh, empire was not driven or shaped by a single centre, but rather by the continuous, uh, uh, we've been continuously redefined uh, by men who circum. Uh, 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 who circulated ar around the globe and this imperial reshuffling uh, I think uh, 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 you know, Anger is a great example uh, uh, of that I want to conclude then by uh, uh, looking at Anger's links with Ireland because throughout his career they remained extremely uh, strong and uh, he brought India to Ireland, so for example uh, he sent his brother an Indian tent made of Indian calico, along with mangoes. Now, one can only begin to imagine how exotic gifts like these delighted uh, both the grandees of Dublin and the locals of rural Longford, which is where the family estate uh, uh, was. But these Indian tents, you know, they're just, they're like palaces. They're absolutely incredible. And I'm totally fascinated by both the consumption and circulation of Indian uh, commodities in late uh, 17th century Ireland, and I'm happy to come back to that in the Q&A. The other thing, of course, that Anger does is he sends back the wealth of uh, uh, India. Uh, he supplies the Earl of Longford with much-needed capital for his business as a property developer in Restoration Dublin, and especially the bustling thoroughfare known as Anger Street. So here we have... Trinity, the castle. So all of this is Dublin's first suburb. It was all developed in the 1660s. And one house uh, uh, has survived from this period. It's a rather sad looking house, 9A. Um, and don't be put off by the 20th century facade, because actually if you look at it from the rear, you can see the Dutch Billy roof. But more importantly, you can see the interior timber framed house, the exquisite uh, 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 17th century uh, staircase, and throughout the house, it's, it's very clear. It's just it's like stepping back in time. It's, it's really uh, uh, quite uh, extraordinary. So Ager may well be remembered as the founding father of Bombay, but he's also Ireland's first nabob. Uh, and I think that, uh, as I say, Ager Street is a constant reminder of that. Uh, Ager uh, may have described himself as an Englishman, uh, but his Irishness was very closely held, something that Oxenden touched on when he congratulated him, quote, on his English. Then he adds in parenthesis, I was going to say Irish, fortitude and forbearance. Uh, the exchange uh, captures the extent to which Anger's Englishness was refracted through the lens of Ireland. 
Now, of course, strictly speaking, uh, Ainger was a member of the New English, as people who migrated to Ireland from the 1530s uh, became known. But he was born and raised in Ireland, as were his parents. He had close kin links to other New English uh, families, but also to old uh, uh, English families, especially the House of Kildare, many of whom were Catholic. The listing of books uh, by Bolton, Bramall and Usher in the inventory of the library at Surat uh, highlights his continued attachment, while a number of his policies uh, uh, in Bombay, especially his attempts to make his city colony English, uh, had clearly been uh, influenced, I would argue, by his experiences of colonial Ireland. In short, Ainger's identity, like his life story, was as complicated as the operation of early modern empire itself. Yet it does, again in my opinion, illustrate the extent to which Ireland served as a laboratory for empire, uh, it illustrates the intimate interplay between commerce and colonisation, the importance of looking east as well as west, and of doing all of this in a more connected framework. So thank you for your attention.